Hey, if you got your Bibles, turn to Romans uh, chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to uh, dismiss with the pleasantries and comical opening illustration because uh, we need to get moving here. We need to get rolling in this text. I went a little off the cuff there. Do you agree with me about what I said? Do you agree that there is a spirit in, not just here, there's a spirit of, uh, of uh, quenching going on in the church, particularly in the West. Do you agree with that? I see it. I know the pastors, I, my, my closest friends who are pastors in the area, they all see it. And so friends, we need to be diligent now more than ever to avoid that. I don't want us to be a statistic in accordance with what the Scriptures say are going to be indicative of so many Christians in the last days. I don't want to be that statistic. And neither do you. And so I, I just, uh, that was just something that I think needed to be said for us as a church family. And I hope that you'll take it in the spirit uh, of, of, of just motivation that I wanted to give there. This is not a spirit of condemnation. This is a spirit of motivation and a desire to move forward in the midst of adversity. And quite frankly, that's exactly what we have here in our, in our text in Romans 9 today. And so, uh, Joyce, I'm going to have you move all the way forward uh, to the, the first opening verses uh, in, in uh, Romans chapter 9. Let's, actually, let's get uh, to the title here just for a moment. The title of uh, this message today is part four in our series. Uh, it's called The Calling of the Gentiles and the Refining of Israel. The Calling of the Gentiles and the Refining of Israel. Now let's jump forward all, all the way to verse 22. We're going to hit this text, uh, the, the third slide of text there, Joyce. And we're going to go and, and read the first opening set of verses 22 to 24, which we covered last week. Let's get into it right now. And I'm still in Hebrews. That's not a good place to be. Let's go back to Romans. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 to 24. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory? Now, we've covered these verses before. And just... just a very brief review again is in order. We know that many Bible readers instinctively suppose that the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are people whom God has predestined to hell. But we have learned that that interpretation of Romans 9.22 is not justified. The Greek words in question do not conclusively mean this. In fact, the words prepared for destruction... Um, have more the sense of fit for calamity. Destruction, meaning calamity of any kind in the Scriptures, does not necessarily mean eternal. And, the word, uh, and then we get to the phrase, vessels of wrath. Many believe this phrase necessarily means eternally condemned people. But if that were the case, then it would be difficult to explain Paul's usage of the phrase elsewhere in Ephesians 2, where he says this, couple slides forward. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So in, in, Ro- in Romans 9, we have vessels of wrath. In Ephesians 2, we have children of wrath. I would submit to you that trying to make a distinction between those two is frivolous. Clearly, what Paul means by this, by implication is, a vessel of wrath can become a vessel for honor. A child of wrath can become a child who is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. A vessel of wrath is not... A vessel of wrath prepared for destruction is not a person God has predestined to hell. It it pertains to people whom God for a time uses for His glory, people whose actions make them fit for calamity. Now, whether or not they receive that calamity remains to be seen. Uh, Those in Ephesians 2 clearly did not receive the extent of the calamity that was due them because they believed on the Lord and they received forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. So whether or not one receives calamity for their actions remains to be seen. God is routinely long-suffering. That's exactly what Romans says, Romans 9. He is patient with vessels of wrath, just as He was patient with us who were formerly children of wrath. And why is he patient? Why is God patient with evildoers? Paul continues in verse 23 with that answer. He says that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I don't know about you, but after reading verse 23, I was a little bit perplexed. I thought to myself, now, how is it that God's glory is greater shown by him being patient with vessels of wrath. I'll ask the question again here in different words. How does God's patience with evildoers more richly manifest His glory on His children, on vessels of honor, vessels of mercy? So It's a legitimate question. But then I thought, of the, the story, the, the very example that Paul gives in Romans 9. He mentions a vessel of wrath. He mentions Pharaoh and the story of the Exodus. The same story Paul cites in Romans 9 uh, is, is apropos to answering this question. You see, God would have been justified in rendering judgment upon Pharaoh in one fell swoop. He would have been justified in absolutely destroying Pharaoh the moment he did evil. He had terribly afflicted the Israelites, Pharaoh did. He was a very evil man. God would have been just to not endure patiently with him and instead to destroy him immediately. But what happened? What what is the story of the Exodus? We see in the story of the Exodus that God was patient with Pharaoh. That He sent Moses to Pharaoh time after time after time. That He gave him forewarning of judgment time after time after time. How many plagues? Ten. Ten times God looked upon Pharaoh and said, if you do not release My people, judgment is coming. Calamity is coming. God was justified in doing it 
all at once. But instead, He chose ten warning signs. Repeated warnings by Moses and by Aaron. And what did God's patience with Pharaoh teach the Israelites? Well, it taught them that God is richly merciful even to those who relentlessly oppose Him. God is richly merciful even to those who relentlessly oppose Him. The prophet uh, Joel speaks to this as well. He writes, actually quoting the Lord, I believe, uh, actually, he says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. What do we learn about God's glory when God is patient with evildoers? We learn that our God is good. We learn that He is slow to anger. We learn that He is slow to wrath. We learn that He is ever willing to see evildoers turn from their wicked ways and turn to Him in faith. That's what Paul means when he says that God endures patiently with the vessels of wrath so that He can more richly manifest His glory. That He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand. Every time Paul mentions patience, every time Paul mentions the patience of God, it is always with a view to salvation. He does it in Romans 2.4. He does it again in 1 Timothy. He's doing it again here. He's saying God is showing patience with them to richly manifest His His graciousness to us and His willingness to relent from doing harm to those to whom He warns. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 24, he mentions some of these vessels of mercy. He says, even us... The Jews, whom He called. But not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so, Paul here is mentioning vessels of honor, vessels of mercy that God has shown favor to. Uh, And now, he mentions one group in particular, the Gentiles, that is especially significant. For up until this point, the Scriptures often portrayed Gentiles as vessels of wrath. But now that Christ has come, something dramatic has happened. The gospel of salvation by faith in Christ has been freely and abundantly offered to all people, Jew and Gentile. And in fact, Paul says later in Romans 11 that Israel's temporary blindness or hardness toward God has actually led to God's mercy being shown to the Gentiles. Notice what it says in Romans 11, 11 and 12. But through Israel's fall, I'm substituting the pronouns here, but through their fall, Israel's fall, To provoke Israel to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Israel's fall is riches for the world, and Israel's failure riches for the Gentiles. Do you see the word riches? Compare that just a couple chapters earlier in our text today in Romans 9, verse 23. The comparison, the, the parallel is complete. God, through Paul, is suggesting here that look, riches... Glorious, the glorious riches of God is bestowed abundantly upon vessels of mercy, even through God's patience with the vessels of wrath. 
God's riches are more manifest. They are demonstrated. They are, they are made more notable against the backdrop, if you will, of the vessels of wrath who are fit for calamity. And in this setting, in this case, in Romans 11, we see in verse 25 that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so against the backdrop of Israel's blindness, against the backdrop of Israel's hardness, God has more richly manifested His glory to the Gentiles. To you and to me. But God is... uh, But God is patient even upon the vessels of wrath. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. The tide is, uh, is turning now that Jesus has died and rose again. Prior to Christ, the Gentiles had uh, that turned to the, the Gentiles that had turned to the God of Israel were few and far between. But since Jesus has come, and since Israel's hardening and temporary blindness, the Gentiles have entered God's kingdom by the millions, perhaps billions. The church has been formed, and you and I sit here today because God has shown us great riches against the backdrop of Israel's blindness. Our salvation, friends, it's encouraging to know that our salvation was actually always a part of God's plan. As we continue on, we can see that in verse 25 and 26 of Romans. We see this in Paul's quotation of Hosea. He says, and he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who were not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. God has always had a plan for the Gentiles. He knew that his son would usher in the salvation of the Gentiles. We see that all over the scriptures in Isaiah 49, verse six. uh, uh, Isaiah writes, uh, quoting the Lord again, I will give you, and he's referring to Jesus, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So we've always known in the plan of God that the Gentiles, you and and I, would be offered salvation in abundance. But interestingly, Paul speaks of the Gentiles' salvation with a prophecy in Hosea. If you go back to Hosea, chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 23, you will find that a simple reading of the context reveals that God is actually not speaking about the Gentiles there. He is speaking about wayward Jewish people. We're not going to turn there right now, but you can do it on your own. Look at, go home and look at Hosea 1.10 and look at Hosea 2.23 and read the context and you will find very, very clearly that the Gentiles are really not being mentioned there. In fact, it's, it's the Lord speaking to wayward Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And He's beckoning them to come back to Him. And we might ask the question, well, now, that kind of that begs the question, why is Paul using this verse to speak of the salvation of the Gentiles? Why would he pick this verse and maybe not the other one I just cited? Well, that's, uh, that's a good question. Uh, first, I mean, I, I want to make sure that we 
are on the same page that, that those Hosea passages are, in fact, about the Jews. This is what Zane Hodges has to say. He says both quotations refer in the context of Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel. But for Paul's purposes, and note this well, the words of Hosea sufficiently establish the principle that those at one time rejected as the people of God can be received by him as his people. It's a great quote. Uh, one that is, uh, is, is extremely applicable to this, uh, to this text. In Romans 9, Paul applies the principle of Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2 to the Gentiles. That just as God has asked Israel to return to him, so also God is beckoning the once ostracized Gentiles to come to him in faith and become sons of the living God. Now, Paul's use of Hosea's prophecy in this way is remarkable on a number of levels. At the very least, it demonstrates that we can, within reason, we can use Scripture that was previously directed at a specific people group, say Israel, and apply that Scripture in principle to another group or perhaps to this present age. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Many of you know the verse in Second Chronicles 7.14. Uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal, hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. How many know that verse? Quite a few of you. It's, it's, it's become a very, very popular verse uh, in recent years. Now, we know uh, that this verse in the Old Testament applies to Israel. So I've got a little Israel flag coming up here. But of course, in America, we tend to also use that verse and say, hey, maybe this might uh, apply, you know, to the United States of America as well. Right now, we have people, Christians on both sides of the fence here. They read this verse and I know some Christians, they read it and they, they love this verse. They cling to it. And, and they think it's absolutely, positively applicable to, uh, to our nation as well as the historic nation of Israel to which it was given. Uh, and I know other Christians who cast aside the verse and say, no, that, that doesn't apply to the United States at all. We can't use that verse. That, that's foolish. That would be taking it out of context. Well, remember what Paul has just done in Romans 9. 25 and 26. Paul has just taken a verse that was previously applicable to the northern kingdom of Israel and only to them. And he has taken the principle of that and he has now applied that principle to the Gentiles. Paul took two verses in Hosea that were solely intended for Israel at the time it was written and used those verses to make a principled statement about the salvation of the Gentiles. I think that speaks volumes to how we might use a verse like this. Is it guaranteed that God would honor the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14 if the United States of America obliged to it? Is it guaranteed? Contextually, I'd have to say no. But in principle, is it reasonable to suggest that if the United States of America 
we're to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways that God would again show us favor in principle? Of course. Of course. That's a perfectly suitable use of that verse taken in its immediate context for Israel and Israel alone and to apply it in principle to this present age. Paul did it. We would be wise within reason to do it too. So we can, in principle, use Old Testament texts previously directed at Israel or a specific group and apply them to situations in our present day. Of course, we will always emphasize keeping Scripture in context, but we need to give the Word of God enough leeway that it might penetrate our hearts, that stories and promises of old might not remain in antiquity, but might become alive again and applicable to this present age. This can be a prayer for the United States of America. Now, the promises and the guarantees that that it entails, I think we should step back and take a more principled look at it because God was speaking directly to Israel there. But 2 Chronicles 7.14, we can absolutely apply it to our nation as can any other nation in this world. It's a legitimate use of Scripture. Not taking it out of context. And I think Paul's use of uh, Hosea in Romans 9, 25 and 26 really help us in understanding how to better interpret God's Word. Now let's continue. Now Paul goes on to speak of Israel in verse 27. He writes, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For He, God, will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Just as we've already been instructed today that God is patient with evildoers. Just as we know assuredly that He has shown patience to us who were once children of wrath, so also God has promised to show patience with Israel who have temporarily turned against Him. According to Romans 9, 10, and 11, these chapters that we're going through now, Paul contends in no uncertain terms that Israel is presently a vessel of wrath. But that that day, Paul says, will be short-lived. Her temporary blindness will be lifted. Her temporary hardness will be softened. And God will show mercy upon a remnant of the Jews. We see Paul quoting two passages from Isaiah here. Isaiah 10.22 and Isaiah 1 verse 9. Two texts among many that speak of God's coming mercy upon a remnant of the Jews. And Paul was convinced with good reason from the Old Testament Scriptures and the words of Christ, Paul was convinced that God would not forsake His people Israel. He was convinced of this in spite of the fact that just a few short years later, Rome was coming to destroy Jerusalem. Think about that for a moment. Paul is writing here in Romans 9, 27-29. He's speaking here of the coming end 
of the Jewish of the tribulation of the Jews, the coming end of their blindness, of their hardness, and their coming salvation and prosperity, if you will. Paul is convinced of this in spite of the fact that just a few short years from the time he writes Romans, Caesar is going to ransack Jerusalem. You might be thinking, why is he so confident here? How can he be so bold as to think that there's going to be a limit to um, the travails of the Jewish people when Paul is quite confident that, that Rome is coming to ransack Jerusalem and to scatter the Jews throughout the world for 1,900 years? He didn't know how long. We do, though. Why is he so confident? I, I can't answer... Paul definitively. Uh, I don't. I wasn't in his mind. Uh, we're, we're not in his mind when he wrote this. But I think what happened was Paul started reading. Author of the authors of Scripture over and over and over and over again, from Moses down through the prophets to the words of Christ, and he saw in them such cohesion. Such similarity, which we'll see in just a moment. Such cohesion of thought, of, of the thematic, the, the, the theme that despite whatever happens to Israel, a remnant will be saved, that Paul says all these men over all these centuries writing all these words that say all the same thing, that's just too incredible. That's just too wild for it not to have merit. And sure enough, you and I, we live in curious times. We don't realize what we see today. We don't realize the privilege that is ours to see human history in the place that we sit right now. The Bible predicted the Jews would return to the land. Do you suppose that that prediction carried much confidence when Rome ransacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and sent the Jews scattering. I don't. I suppose people looked upon those predictions and says, I guess the Bible's wrong. And what has happened in our day? Israel's in the land. The Jews have returned. Just as the Bible predicted. Now, skeptics may doubt the veracity of various portions of Scripture, but who among them are prepared to doubt this? And this reminds me, whenever you encounter, and I know you do, especially when you're young, when you're in high school, when you're in junior high, college, and and, and new to the faith, you encounter argument after argument after argument against the veracity of the Bible, against the veracity of Scripture. And we're troubled by these arguments at times. But when you are faced with those arguments, may you remind yourself of one of the greatest prophecies in all of human history that has come true in your lifetime. That the Jewish people were scattered some 1,900 years across the face of the world. That they faced terrible persecutions. Rome killed 1.1 million Jews in 70 AD. Hitler killed 6 million Jews in the 1940s. And yet, they've come back to their land. Just as the Bible said they would. 
Ask the skeptic to show you a like example of a people group that has experienced what Israel has experienced and yet returned as a nation. Your skeptic friend will have no example. Clearly, the day of Israel's salvation is near. We see it. But before that day comes, the Bible indicates that Israel's travails are not yet over. The Bible predicts that those who have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah will suffer in the coming tribulation period. In fact, the prophet Zechariah speaks to this suffering. He even puts a number on it, if you will. Zechariah 13, verse 8, he says... And it shall come to pass in all the lands, this is the land of Israel he's speaking of, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and shall die. This is an eschatological prophecy about the tribulation period and about the number of people in the land of Israel that will perish as a result of the great tribulation that is coming. Two-thirds will die. Jesus attests to this. He says in Matthew 24, verse 21, For there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor ever shall be. You know, when Jesus says it will be since uh, that this tribulation will be such that the world has never seen, we are on safe grounds to suggest that this will be far worse than even what we saw from Hitler. But remember, Paul has declared in Romans 9, let's go back to it, that a remnant will be saved in verse 27. He calls this remnant a seed in verse 29. And he says the Lord would cut short the work of tribulation in verse 28. How does that align with the rest of Scripture? Let's take a look. Notice what, how Zechariah finishes. Next verse. Zechariah continues, But one-third shall be left in it, and I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on My name, and I will answer them. I will say, This is My people. And each one will say, The Lord is My God. This is the promise. This is the hope. This is the time when God relents from doing harm upon those who have previously opposed Him. And Jesus, we saw Jesus saying in Matthew 24, 21, that great tribulation is coming, but notice what He says after that. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. The elect meaning the Jews. God's chosen people. Wow. Wow. Do you see cohesion here? I do. We see time and time again Zechariah and Jesus and Paul all saying it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse for the people of Israel in particular. Right now they're, you know, they're in the middle of uh, peace talks. Peace talks have broken down. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen next. We know that there's just there's, there's such intensity in that region now. People are waiting for it to burst. Zechariah said it. The prophet said it. Moses said it. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Cohesion. We see it. 
But that that travail, that tribulation, that it would be cut short. Zechariah said it would be cut short. Jesus said it. Paul said it. It would be shortened for the sake of the elect. And that a remnant would be preserved. Zechariah said one-third. Jesus said the elect. Paul said a remnant. Cohesion, friends. Show this to your skeptic, friend. Show this to the one who says the Bible is inconsistent to the left and to the right. Surely, that is foolish in light of what we read here. Indeed, the teaching of the entire Bible speaks to the fact that though Israel will yet suffer persecution, the Lord will cut that day short in mercy and show His loving kindness upon His chosen people again. A remnant will be saved. And yet again, those who were once children of wrath, like you and me, will become vessels of mercy upon whom God's favor rests. We're going to leave the remaining verses for next week due to time. But friends, let us remember as we, as we conclude this part four of the calling of the Gentiles and the refining of the Jews, let us see in this the, the cohesion of Scripture. Let us see in this that despite a backdrop of wrath and calamity, despite a backdrop of future travail and hardship, despite a backdrop of, of, of dire straits that are yet to come and that should bind us together, God is bringing forth a relenting from calamity to those who turn to Him in faith. The Jewish people will turn to Him. A remnant will be saved. And against the backdrop of calamity, the patience of God will be manifested richly for all of us to see. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You for a difficult text, but one that as we come through it, Father, we see the integrity of Your Word. God, let us have great confidence in You. Let us see the things in our own day and age and let it remind us that You've predicted it. You've, you've told us that it would be so. And Lord, we know the other warnings in Scripture. The warnings that suggest that the church will fall prey to so much betrayal, to so much shrinking back that Your very church, will, the hearts of many will grow cold. God, I pray against that for this church. We ask Your Spirit to be strong here in the face of adversity. We ask that we would bind together, realize the stakes, set aside things in our life that are meaningless right now, that are pointless, that distract from what we and our families need to be focused on. Lord, this is a momentous time. We ask that You would lead us through it. That we would cling to You and serve one another. And that against the backdrop of hardship, we would see Your rich mercy shine brightly. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.